0: Please open your Bibles to 1st Peter chapter 3. 1st Peter chapter 3. Our text this morning is going to be verses 13 through 17. So let us stand together as we're finding our place there. And as is our custom, we'll read that text and then pray for the Lord to bless us as we study his word. Now, as we we read this, let's keep in mind that the miracle of Scripture is that a man wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to people who lived 2,000 years ago, and yet it speaks to us and is applicable to us where we find ourselves today. It is miraculous. There is no book like this. 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 13. Now... Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word written to your people. Among whom we are this morning. And we pray for your Holy Spirit's help. That we might understand it rightly and that, that you might have your way in us through this text. Lord, help us to understand it and apply it. That we might leave here different than when we walked in. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. My family has a loved one who recently commented on social media that it is morally inconsistent to argue that abortion should be permissible in the cases of rape. If abortion is wrong because it terminates a life, and it is because it does, then it terminates a life no matter how that life was conceived. It is wrong to abort a child conceived by rape. Of course, she was roundly vilified. Taking, taking any kind of stand for life in our culture is one of the quickest ways to be shouted down, insulted, demeaned. But attack one of the, the, the cherished, sacred exceptions that, that, that we know as for the life of the mother or in cases of rape and incest, and you'll be socially dogpiled. Now, if, if that kind of treatment, and we might, we might call it persecution, I think Peter would, ill treatment for standing for the truth, if fear of that took hold of, of this person's heart, what might we expect her to do? How, how easy would it be to just be quiet, or to avoid ill-treatment, to to even adopt the opinion of the culture, at least publicly, so as to avoid its displeasure. Or how sinfully natural would it be to respond to those attacks in an ungodly fashion with with snarky retorts or angry, defensive, tit-for-tat insults. I was so pleased with how she handled this. She held the line. She spoke the truth. She continued to reason from the truth. But she did so with grace and charity and kindness. There, there are a whole range of things today for which a believer will suffer ridicule. It's only going to get worse with time. And this is one of the reasons that Peter has written this letter to the church. Life as an elect exile is not intended to be a life wherein we blend into the woodwork of society. We are distinct in this this world. We We have lives of distinctiveness. We've got a distinctive gospel. We have a distinctive morality. And we should have a distinctive lifestyle that commends our gospel. So our gospel our morality, our lifestyle, it will inevitably prick the carefully seared consciences of the godless culture around us so that they will lash out at us. There will be suffering for those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, so says the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12. Peter, in this middle section of this letter, is moved into a, a time where he is explaining how we should handle that suffering and persecution and how our handling of that persecution can itself commend the gospel. You know that it is quite possible. And if, you, if we think about it, most of us probably can, can identify examples of this. It's quite possible that our response to persecution, our response to the ill treatment of the world for our faith can sabotage our witness. And undo the gospel work that brought about the ill treatment in the first place. What a tragedy that would be. And Peter wants to prevent that. So he gives us instruction here. And we receive it from the word in the form of one truth and two commands. One truth and two commands in this text. So first of all, we will consider the truth. And then we will find two commands that Flow as just natural implications from that truth. And the first truth is this. It's the first point in your notes. Those who suffer for doing good. Are favored by God. They're favored by God. Look with me again at verse 13. Now who is there to harm you. If you're zealous for what is good. Now. Because we don't have the time to read the entire letter of 1 Peter every Sunday morning, sometimes we might miss how a passage fits into the larger context. And I want to make sure that we don't do that this morning because verse 13 has everything to do with what he has written in the previous passage. We saw in that previous passage that the elect exile is called to be a blessing. He's a blessing to the church and to the culture, and he's blessed by God. Okay, So look at verse 12 again that we looked at few weeks ago for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil God is on the side of the righteous he's against the evil doer verse 13 is connected to that idea if the idea if the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer goodness who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good This is the same idea that we find in Romans chapter 8 that, that the pastor Jason read for us earlier today. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Peter has, he has no illusions that smooth sailing is going to be the order of the day for believers in Jesus Christ. He's going to write later on in this letter, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as if something strange is happening to you. It's not strange at all. It's the norm. Difficulty is the norm for the believer who is faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he does not mean, who is there to harm you in this life? Because he he assumes that that throughout our lives, believers are going to suffer temporal harm and injustice for doing good. What he means here is ultimate harm. This is is a uh, grammar nerds here. This is for you, all right? This is a future participle, and these are crazy rare in the Greek New Testament. So, who will there be to harm you if you're zealous for good? Is a more literal way to translate it. He has the last day in mind, judgment day, okay? If you're zealous for good, who who will be there to harm you on the last day? Remember, the blessing of God that he's referring to in this section is It comes from that that quotation from Psalm 34 that began in verse 10. This is a last day blessing. Who can take that from you is the question. Who can take that from you if you're zealous for for good? Verse 14, rather than presenting a contrast, is actually a clarification of his point. Look at verse 14. He writes, "But, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Now, the idea of these two verses together, verses 13 and 14, is that No one can ultimately harm you if you're zealous for doing good. Even though you suffer in this life, you're ultimately blessed. You're ultimately, literally, blessed ones. Peter is taking this directly from Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5.10. Pastor Jason already read it this morning. It's like he's got my sermon notes. I didn't tell him to do this. He must have been looking at this text. Matthew 5.10 reads, this is the Lord Jesus saying this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is what Peter means by you will be blessed. The blessing is this this reward of God's eternal presence on the last day, the kingdom of heaven. Now, listen to this. If, If we trace the argument of this letter and put together the the theology of the whole New Testament, which, of course, we don't have time to do this morning, we find that enduring suffering for doing good, enduring suffering for doing good, is a sign that you are favored by God. Not that you have earned God's favor, but that you are an object of God's grace, His unmerited favor. It's a sign that you've been chosen by God, that His grace has acted upon you, and you are destined for the kingdom. Now, why would I say that? Why would enduring suffering for doing good, why would that be a sign that you are an object of God's grace? Because those who are unregenerate, that is, those who have not been brought to spiritual life in Christ by the Holy Spirit... When they come under persecution for doing good, they fall away from the faith. Do you remember the parable of the sower? Matthew chapter 13. What did Jesus say about those who hear the word and immediately receive it with joy? He said about them, they they have no root. What he means by that is they're not truly connected to Christ. Christ. And so, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, what happens to them? Immediately they fall away. But what did Jesus say about the seed that falls on the good soil? And there he's he's talking about true believers. Well, implied is that they suffer persecution as well. But what do they do under that persecution? They not only remain in the faith, but they bear fruit much fruit. They live lives that show godly evidence of their connection to the vine, which is Jesus Christ. They, they suffer for it, and they endure, demonstrating the genuineness of their faith, to use the language of, of, of Peter from chapter 1. So if you endure, that is, if, if you stay in the faith, you continue in the faith, as you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are a blessed one. And you will be blessed eternally. The text takes that truth and finds two implications and gives those implications to us in the form of two commands. Okay? If it is true that no one can ultimately harm you, if you belong to the Lord, there is a lifestyle that should then eventuate. If you have grasped the truth... That there's no one to harm you because you belong to Jesus. There is a lifestyle that should come from that. First of all, those who suffer for doing good should not fear persecution. That's the next point in your notes. Those who suffer for doing good should not fear persecution. Look with me at the last part of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. When we think about persecution, any manner of pressure, ill treatment for being associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's all be honest, okay? We tend to be a little bit fearful. Blood pressure rises a little bit. We may start to sweat. It's uncomfortable. We don't want it. It may rise to the level of fearing these people, being troubled. But when that happens, we're not really thinking it all the way through biblically, are we? Those who suffer for doing good are favored by God. And the first implication of that is that we should not be fearful. We should not be troubled. Those who suffer for doing good and who therefore are the blessed of God, they're in an ultimate no-lose situation. You can't find those on this planet just occurring naturally. They, They have to come by divine grace. Listen, there there was a time when you and I had plenty to fear, right? Let's let's think back through this. There was a time when you and I had plenty to fear. We were ensnared by our iniquities. Held fast in the cords of our sin. Hating God, hating one another. And the God that we hated is a righteous judge. Is a righteous judge who pours out wrath on evildoers. And not just for a minute, not just for a month, a year, not even for millions of years, like this absurdity that some call purgatory, but he pours out his wrath for eternity. And this is omnipotent wrath, because... This is an omnipotent God. Think about this omnipotent God with me for a moment. The God that we hated and who was our enemy. This God so powerful that he said words and space and time obeyed him by coming into existence. He he commanded and stars formed. Every, every cell and every body in this room and every cell in everybody outside this room is functioning properly right now by his direct control. He upholds all things by the word of his omnipotent power. Try to fathom omnipotence and you will fail. Try to fathom omnipotent wrath and you will shudder. We were objects of omnipotent wrath and could do nothing to change that. God Almighty was our enemy. We formerly had plenty to fear. Now, why formerly? Because, blessedly, this righteous God ransomed us from sin and death by the life, death, and resurrection of His own Son, Jesus Christ. As Christ was nailed to the cross, our sins were placed upon His shoulders so that He paid the penalty for them. And when He was raised from the dead three days later, it proved that God's wrath, this omnipotent wrath, was completely satisfied. And Jesus had earned the right to give life to whomever He chooses. And by virtue of Christ's righteousness, given to us, God adopted us as his own. And listen to this, from the words of Jesus Christ in John 17, loves us as he loves his own son. Now, from all of that, Peter draws this beautiful, I'm sorry, Paul draws this beautiful inference that we have already read this morning from from Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is interceding for us. Who, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody. When we allow that gospel to control our thinking in the midst of suffering for our doing good, it should radically transform the way that we regard our circumstances. Radically. What's the worst thing that can happen to me? It's not dying. It's not being ridiculed. Dying is one of the best things that can happen to me. Because of that bloody cross, my sin and death have died. And because of his resurrection, his life is now mine to live eternally. To live as Christ, to die as gain. What is the worst thing that can happen to me? If I suffer for doing the right thing in this life, it only reminds me that I belong to him and that I will belong to him eternally. That this suffering is temporary. It drives me to depend upon him. Of what ultimate evil do I have to be afraid in this life? That's what Paul, I mean, Peter wants us to see here. Because the gospel is true, there is nothing of which we must be ultimately afraid. And the reality of that favor of God upon the believer frees us in this life. It frees us from ultimate fear and it frees us to do something else, okay? It's the next point in your notes. Those who suffer for doing good should revere Christ as Lord should revere Christ as Lord. Look at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Okay, so let's, let's back up for a second. We'll, we'll remind ourselves of the, the train of thought so that we don't lose this, all right? If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're a blessed one. And you will be blessed. You're an object of God's grace. Peter finds two implications of that truth. He expresses them as commands. The first one was, do not be fearful. Do not be troubled. The second one, we find in verse 15, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Literally, more literally, it reads, sanctify Christ as Lord. To sanctify means to to set something apart. So we are being called in this text to set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts. To give ourselves over completely to the service of this precious Jesus as master of every part of our lives. Those who know they belong to God, they are free to pour out their lives in service to the Lord Jesus. This life of suffering is variously described by the apostles as temporary Momentary, fleeting. James calls it a vapor or a mist, depending on what translation you're using. According to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, investment in service to Christ during this momentary life of suffering leads to an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, those of you who invest, think about this in investment terms. We suffer momentarily during an earthly life that we can calculate in years. And when we die, we receive a reward that cannot be calculated. That, that, that there's a finite investment and an infinite return guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. When we we grasp that as believers, we should not subscribe to this YOLO nonsense that our culture goes so crazy about, the the, you-only-live-once ethic. This you-only-live-once ethic is, is empty for multiple reasons. First of all, you don't only live once, do you? You live twice. You live in this life, and then when you physically die, this life is over, and you enter eternity—either eternal life in the presence of God or eternal death under the conscious torment of the wrath of God. You don't only live once, but the "you only live once" ethic is nonsense for another reason. Those of us, that are the, those in our culture that use that phrase, typically mean by saying that phrase, "Well, you you only get one life, so you need to pack it." With as much fun and pleasure, typically meaning bodily pleasure, and excitement as possible. Now, for the believer, that doesn't make any sense because what do we find all over the Bible? And and stated just beautifully in Psalm 16, at the very end of of the psalm. Pleasures forevermore are located at the right hand of the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. So we don't look for ultimate pleasure in earthly experiences. Now we we can certainly enjoy earthly experiences, but we only enjoy them rightly as gifts from Him. So those who know that they belong to God and who therefore know that after they die they will experience an eternity of bliss in His presence, they're then free to spend this life serving the one that they love, Jesus, and not chasing fleeting pleasures of the world. And and for those who love Jesus, serving Him isn't like taking your medicine up front so that then you can eat cake later. No, believers are like Jesus. The Jesus who said in John, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. So we, like Jesus, we delight to do the will of the one we love. There is no sense in which we are missing out on this life because suffering in this life brings greater intimacy with Jesus, which is itself pleasurable. And knowing him in this life means ultimate pleasure in the next. So the one who truly embraces the fact that suffering for doing good is an indication of God's blessing, they will give themselves over completely to the service of this Jesus. All right, now, Peter gives that command, okay, But then he gives us the means and the manner of this service. The means and the manner, okay? The means of service comes by testifying to hope. Testifying to hope. That's also in your notes. Look at the rest of verse 15 with me. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Now, this verse assumes not only that you're suffering but that your response to it shouts hope. For for many people, suffering drives them to despair, right? Well, Peter assumes the opposite for believers. There, There must be something about your response to suffering, suffering for doing good, that moves people around you to ask, what on earth is the deal with you? Explain your hope. The, the believer walking with Christ ought not be a, a downtrodden, joyless, futureless, voiceless victim coming uh, cowering in the shadows. Peter assumes that the believer is going to be living all of the things that he's talked about already in this letter. He assumes that we'll be joyful because of this inheritance being kept for us in heaven. He assumes that we'll be enamored with the Lord Jesus and that this is going to affect our actions, even our countenance. He assumes that we'll submit respectfully to authority, even unjust authority, that even in the midst of all the turmoil coming at us from unbelievers, we'll be characterized by otherworldly love for one another in the church. To use Peter's favorite word, he assumes we'll be characterized by hope. 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 So so the apostle assumes that to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, to honor him as Lord, we must not only be willing to suffer for doing good, but we must suffer with obvious hope. So obvious that the people around us, they're not just scratching their heads, but they can't help but ask us about it. What is the deal with you? Now, assuming that that's going on, we must be ready to give a defense when asked for a reason for that hope. And being ready entails two things. It's not in your notes, but you're free to write it down anyway, all right? This entails two things. Being ready entails two things. First and foremost, we must be ready to give a clear explanation of the gospel itself. We must be ready to give a clear explanation of the gospel itself. Because th- think about what's being questioned. What is the reason for your hope? Well, the, the reason for our hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll admit to you, it, it's been discouraging to me over the course of my my whole life, how few professing believers are able to articulate the gospel clearly and accurately. You know, in, in our church, we hear the gospel every week and, and We use different words, so it doesn't always sound exactly the same. The truth is the same. Though you you hear it all the time, do not take comfort from that, that you are now able to articulate it. Because hearing it all the time is not the same thing as being able to articulate it clearly and accurately yourself. So I have homework for you. Today, at lunch, tonight... um, at, at dinner, maybe even today at, at the potluck, as you're sitting across the table from someone, you could do this. Go around the table, ask every person present to share the gospel in a nutshell. What, what is the gospel? Now, I've just said this in front of everybody, okay? Not, not just to one or two of you, so you could just pretend I didn't say it. I've said it in front of everybody. Now, if you're ahead of the household, you go first. You go first. Some of us are terrified right now. Now, why, why would we be terrified? Maybe it's because we're not sure we can do it. But think about it this way. If you can't do it, wouldn't it be good to know that so that you can learn? Because this is not, a, this is not something that's uncorrectable. It, it, it can be fixed. we just, just learn how to articulate it clearly and accurately consider the words of this text this is, this is a command to be ready. be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. The easiest component of of obeying that command is just to give a straightforward account of the gospel and being able to do that is part of what it means to honor the Christ Christ as Lord. Th- th- think think about this with me. All right. This is not intended to be a guilt trip at all. It's it just an honest question, and I, but I think it's helpful. How much sense does it make for us to say that Christ is Lord of our lives, that He is everything to us, if we are unable in 20 or 30 seconds to explain to someone what He did to reconcile sinners to the Father? It seems like that, that would be a, a very rudimentary thing expected of someone who adores Jesus and has been saved by him. So, so first of all, we, we must be ready to, to explain the gospel to somebody. Second, we must be ready to explain why the gospel is reasonable. We must be ready to explain why the gospel is reasonable we got our word apologetics from the greek word underlying this word defense some of you may not know what apologetics is apologetics is the discipline of defending the faith or explaining why christianity is reasonable and ultimately why it's the only reasonable faith not everyone needs to be a master apologist but everyone should be able to 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 explain why they believe what they believe. Everyone should be able to answer basic questions posed by skeptics. There are a lot of these, but let me just give you a couple. Why Jesus and not other gods? That's a timeless question that I'm certain Peter's original readers faced. They're they're in an, an idolatrous culture. They're surrounded by gods. They only worship one. Why Why only Jesus and not these other gods? That's a question that you'll face if you share the gospel. We simply cannot consider ourselves ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us if we're unable to answer that question. Why? Why Jesus and not other gods? Why the Bible and not the Quran? Why the Bible and not the Book of Mormon? Why the Bible and not my own sensibilities? If if you can't answer that question, you're not ready to give a defense for the hope That is in you. Being able to answer those questions, it does take some study. And and it can seem daunting. But but consider the other things for which we're so willing to flush our precious time away. I mean, the, the, the ability to do this, it really is not super discipleship. This is just discipleship. Because if we follow the grammar back up, what is he talking about? He's just talking about recognizing Christ as Lord. This is part of recognizing Christ as Lord. Revering him. Being able to do this is part of what it means to serve the Lord, testifying to hope. Okay, that's the means. Peter also speaks of the manner in which we we testify to hope. We do it by displaying a good conscience. Displaying a good conscience. Look at the the tail end of verse 15 and into verse 16. He says, yet do it, he's talking about testifying to hope, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The end of verse 15 is literally, yet with humility and fear. Humility toward the person that you're talking to who is questioning you about the hope and fear toward God or reverence for God. Now, why is it important? Why is it important to interact with these people questioning us about our hope Why is it important to interact with them with gentleness and humility? Well, I I wish this wasn't the case, but I could point you to several well-known apologists who have the defense part down really well, but they haven't the first clue about gentleness and humility. They, They are brilliant at logically and biblically defending the faith, but they are so arrogant, sarcastic, and ungodly in how they deal with their, their godless questioners, that they contradict the gospel that they say they love. So these, these apologists, they, they are, are not people who have obviously been transformed by the gospels. In my opinion, to be perfectly blunt with you, it would be better for them to just shut up. It does not matter how well-reasoned your your arguments are if you are ungodly. Razor-sharp apologetics will be completely undone by arrogance. This entire section of the book of 1 Peter encourages us to commend the gospel by our lives. So it should be no surprise at all that Peter would, would encourage us to defend the faith with gentleness and humility. When we fail in that, when we fail in the gentleness and humility part, We fail to defend the faith. Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2. He said, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. According to Paul, it's not just the servant's ability to teach or the ability to correct that is going to lead a person to the knowledge of the truth. Rather, it's that ability to teach and ability to correct combined with kindness, combined with patience in the face of evil. By that, God may grant that person repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. By that, God might free that person from the snare of the devil. It is not just the defense of the gospel but a defense of the gospel commended by a demeanor that has been transformed by the gospel. So, I want to give you some good resources. i am going to give you two names, okay? These are godly men, and you can learn from them both how to defend the faith and how to do it with gentleness and humility. Ravi Zacharias and the late R.C. Sproul. Google them and you'll come up with all kinds of resources. So we need, we need to display humility toward the, the person that we're interacting with. But secondly, fear fear or reverence for God. So our, our disposition toward God is, is essential as we defend the faith. And this is because ultimately he's the one that we serve, not men. That, that's why Peter uses the clause, having a good conscience. It, it's possible to wrong the Lord in our defense of the faith by our demeanor toward others. So we need, we need to understand that, that the Lord is watching. And if we're unkind to people, we're actually doing a disservice to the Lord whom we serve. A, a good conscience, which, which is a conviction of the soul that we have been faithful to the Lord. This is a prized possession by the believer. You could write down a couple of references. First Timothy one, five, there Paul writes, The aim of our charge, the whole point of what we're doing here, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Later in that same chapter, 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 and 19, he writes. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you might wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Having a good conscience in this context is valuable because you can know that when you're being slandered, it is because you have done good and not evil. So, so note... How crucial is the manner in which we make a defense defense of the gospel, a defense of the hope that is within us. If we follow the, the grammar here, we'll see it's possible to undo this whole thing by defending our hope in a harsh, ungodly way. The whole context pertains to suffering for righteousness sake, for for doing good. In verses 15 and 16, he says, do this with gentleness and fear so that when they slander you for your good behavior, they'll be put to shame. We could flip that over and say, if you defend your hope harshly or pridefully, your slanderers will be justified in their slander because... They will not be slandering good works, but they will be slandering ungodly works. And that is why the apostle follows in verse 17 with, For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It does nothing for the gospel for believers to suffer for doing evil. So even in our defense of the hope within us, we must display a good conscience. That is, our our demeanor must please the Lord. Gentleness and humility So that that even as we argue for the exclusivity of Christ, that is, He is the only way, and as we argue for the veracity of the Christian faith, it alone is true, there is nothing in our demeanor for which they can legitimately slander us. Now, obviously, they will slander us. They're going to slander us. But on the last day, all that slander is going to be shown to be illegitimate If we defend the faith with gentleness and humility, the slanderers will be put to shame on the last day. So let me ask you a few questions as we close here. Are you afraid to speak the truth about Christ because of the treatment that's going to come at you? Are you afraid of the suffering that will come from following the Lord with your life in an ungodly culture, following the Lord with your life and following the Lord with your proclamation. Are you fearful? If if so, meditate on these scriptures and the truths connected throughout the Bible to to which they are connected. What would this passage say to you if you are fearful? Are you thinking biblically? When you have been challenged in your faith, when when people have questioned you, how have you responded? How have you responded? Have you done so with gentleness and humility? Just think through this. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to do this? If called on this morning, as you leave this place if called on this morning to give a defense for the hope that is in you would you be able to clearly and accurately convey the truth of the gospel if asked a typical skeptical question why Jesus and not other gods why the Bible it's just an old book could you answer those questions if the answer is no no I'm not ready then by God's grace, we need to get ready, don't we? We need to be ready. This is, this, is, this is a matter of obedience. It's a matter of revering Christ as Lord. The believer who grasps his or her standing with the Lord will fear no evil in this life and will honor Christ as Lord, being always ready to give a defense for the hope in them always gentle fearing god so that he is honored and on the last day those who slander are put slander are put to shame let us pray together Father, we we pray this morning for ourselves, we pray for our brothers and sisters in other places in the world, Somalia and elsewhere, that the truth of the gospel would reign in our hearts, that fear might not, so that we would revere Christ as Lord, and we would be ready, be ready, be ready to give a defense. Lord, would you move in us this morning to eradicate fear and and drive us to be bold and gentle and humble and reverent toward you as we embrace the life of elect exiles in this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.